Um, thank you for having me here to preach this morning. If you would please not open your Bibles, I know that's a strange thing to say, but before we start, we're going to be looking at Psalm 118, and I want to give you a Bible memory quiz. I know no one likes pop quizzes, but I want to see out of Psalm 118 how much of it you already know. And I, my hope is that you're going to realize that you are more familiar with it than you think you are, and hopefully that'll encourage you to turn to it in the future. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you the first part of a couple of verses, and I want you to complete it from memory, okay? And I want you to say it out loud. I know we have masks on. There's no, like, mumbling under your breath. you got to say it out loud so we can all hear, okay? So, so here are a few verses. Verse 1. I'm going to say the first part. You complete it. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love, right. Verse 24, this is the day the Lord has made. Verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected. 23, this is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. And blessed is he who comes. All right. See, you practically have the psalm memorized already. You only have a little ways to go. So, in 2021, open up to Psalm 118. You'll get it done in no time. One of the reasons that this psalm is so familiar and significant is because it's one of the most frequently quoted psalms in the New Testament. It's quoted in Hebrews, in Acts, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, 1 Peter, and it's referenced in many other places. Psalm 118 also plays an important role in the annual Passover celebration. So it is the hymn that Jesus and his disciples sang together that's mentioned in Matthew 26:30 after they had eaten the Last Supper. It's a psalm that points to hope in difficult circumstances. It calls us to trust in God rather than in man, and it highlights God's steadfast love and salvation in Christ. So, now let's open our Bibles to Psalm 118, and we'll read through this together. What I'm going to do is, this originally was probably done responsively, and so what I'm going to do is, for the first three verses, when I read the first half of the verse, I want you all to say, His steadfast love endures forever. And then we'll read the last two verses together. So in those first three verses, you respond. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. Let Israel say, let the house of Aaron say, let those who fear the Lord say, out of my distress I called on the Lord and the Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side. As my helper, I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better 
to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All the nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us. We pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. And he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, and I will extol you. Let's read this together. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Lord God, we pray now that by your Spirit you would meet us in your word. Lord, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you, O oh Lord, my rock and my Redeemer. Bookends. Bookends are usually made of something heavy. They stand at either end of a line of books and they hold the books together. They hold them up. Books don't stand up very well on their own. They tend to slouch or slide or fall over. You need bookends and bookends with some weight to them, some density to keep the books together. Dr. Stephen Nichols says of Psalm 118, it says, he says, this psalm has bookends. The beginning and the end are the same. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. He goes on to say that when the biblical authors use this literary device, they not only emphasize the beginning and the end, but sometimes they also point to the middle. Psalm 118 has bookends that point to the middle. And the middle is where we live out our lives. The bookends show us how our life is held together because it's capped. It's capped with the Lord's goodness and steadfast love. In the middle, we face trials 
And the temptation is to try to find ultimate hope in people. But Psalm 118 tells us that it is not safe to put our ultimate trust in people. The Lord, not man, is to be trusted for his steadfast love endures forever. It's the Lord, not man, who is to be trusted for his steadfast love endures forever. And so we're going to look at three aspects of Psalm 118, the trial, the trust, and the triumph. So first, the trial. In verses 5 to 18, the psalmist here is describing with dramatic language the difficulties of life. In verse 5, he says he is in distress. In verses 10 and 11, he is surrounded on every side by enemies. In verse 13, he says he is pushed hard so that he's falling. In verse 18, he says he was severely disciplined. He's giving a picture of life in a fallen world, of a world corrupted by sin that is filled with trials. And we can relate to this. There are circumstances, both big and small, that leave us feeling distressed, feeling pushed around and overwhelmed. The description in verse 12 stands out as being surrounded by attacking nations on every side. They come with such intensity, they're described as a swarm of bees. Have you ever been attacked by bees? There was a time when we were hiking as a family. We were out on the trail and we accidentally walked over a hornet's nest. And the hornets came up and they even flew up into one of our children's clothing. So they were stinging them up underneath their clothes. Just one bee sting is enough to to make you panic, right? If you throw your hands up, you go running. Imagine to have bees not only in your face but up in your clothes. It's enough to make you want to... Tear all of your clothes off and run away as fast as you can. That's what life in the middle is like. That's the way that trials feel. The pain and the difficulties, they can tend to swarm around us and we begin to panic. Don't we sometimes feel that sense of being overwhelmed when multiple challenges come at you at once? And then you throw in a worldwide pandemic Throw in a divisive political climate. This is life in the middle. This is the trial. It feels like you're being swarmed by bees, and our response is panic and fear. The psalmist can relate to your day-to-day life. And the trial is real, but God doesn't just leave us in our panic. In the midst of the trial, God reminds us that we are not alone. This is where the idea of bookends comes into play. Verses 1 to 4 and verse 29 are the bookends that hold the middle of life together. We find grace to endure through the trial when we know that the Lord's steadfast love is with us. His steadfast love. Now, the word translated steadfast love here is a significant Hebrew word. It's pronounced chesed. The word occurs over 120 times in the book of Psalms, 247 times in the Old Testament. One of the main themes of the book of Psalms is that God's love for you is a steadfast 
love. His love does not change. It doesn't waver based on anything we do. God's steadfast love means that he extends mercy toward us. If you read the King James Version, the word is often translated as mercy. He extends mercy toward us. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve, but he's merciful. He blesses us. God's steadfast love includes his kindness toward us. He's caring and generous. God's steadfast love is the promise, committed, covenant love of God toward us. The Lord's steadfast love needs to be our starting place the way it is in this psalm. And we need to focus on it for a while before we try to address the trial. The first four verses, they repeat, 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 repeat. The Lord's steadfast love endures forever. That's because we need to repeat this and repeat this. We need to say it. We need to remind ourselves. We need to say it with God's people Israel. We need to say it with the priests of Aaron. We need to say it alongside everyone who fears the Lord that his steadfast love endures forever. Because one of the first things that we start to believe when trials swarm all around us is that God's love has not endured. We feel like he has left us because trial doesn't feel like love. Pain makes us feel abandoned and alone. So we look at the trial. When we look at the trial, we need to embrace the reality that God's steadfast love endures with us forever. The trials are not evidence that God doesn't love us. The trials become the means to reveal that his love sticks with us through every circumstance, even in the midst of the trial. Meditating on his steadfast love reminds us that his, that in this life, there are finite things, things that have a beginning and things that have an end. And there are things that endure forever. Without the beginning or end, Sorry. The trial, whatever it is, is finite. The trial is finite. It had a beginning and it will have an end. But the steadfast love of the Lord, without beginning, without end, it endures forever. God has really used Psalm 118 to fill me with deeper amazement at his love because I become, as I read through it, more and more aware that his love endures through everything right alongside me. It is not diminished or withdrawn because of my sin, but it endures with me. It draws me to repentance, to greater gratitude. I'm amazed that God's love is, as John Bunyan describes it, unwearied, undaunted love. God never gets fatigued or tired of loving us. Everyone that you know, everything that you see has limits. It runs out. You reach the end, but not God's love. It is steadfast and endures for all eternity. The book ends and the repetition of this psalm, they make me feel like that's what I want my life to look like. I want my life to be bookended with the declaration that the steadfast love of the Lord 
endures forever. And he is good. I want each day of my life to be bookended with this. I want to declare it to myself in the morning when I get out of bed. And I want to whisper it to myself as I close my eyes to go to sleep at night. The Lord is good. And his steadfast love endures forever. The trial is a real threat, but the Lord is going to bring us through because his steadfast love. We can trust him. Because of his steadfast love, we can trust him. And that's the second aspect of this song, the trust. The trust. We can trust the Lord. Beginning with his steadfast love, he's worthy of our trust. Psalm 118 is a meditation on reasons to trust God. If you ever find yourself saying, I'm having trouble trusting God, not sure, go to Psalm 118. It's a meditation on reasons to trust God. His steadfast love is one facet of his goodness. He's merciful, he's kind, compassionate, and generous. J.I. Packer says that God's faithfulness to his purposes, promises, and people is a further aspect of his goodness. Because he's good, he's worthy of our trust. We may struggle with believing that God is good when we're wrestling with some of the painful circumstances in our lives, but he will show himself faithful. The Lord is good in all ways. He's good in his motives. God is good in his intentions. God is good in his actions. He's good in his desires. He's good in every way. Psalm 119 verse 69 says, You are good and you do good. That's a pithy little reminder of God summed up. You are good and you do good. Knowing God is always good in all ways, reassures us that we can trust him. We can trust the Lord because he hears and answers our prayers. Verse 5 says, Out of my distress I called upon the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. Verse 21 says, I thank you that you have answered me. The Lord hears and the Lord answers his children. This is, another, this is another major theme of the scriptures and of Psalms specifically. You read through the Psalms, you begin to see how often God says he answers prayer. Psalm 34, 3 and many others. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. God makes it his promise to you in Jeremiah 3, 33, Call on me. And I will answer you. There are times when the Lord answers with his deliverance. And there are times when the Lord answers with 2 Corinthians 12, 9. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. But either way, we experience the nearness of God to us. And we can trust him because of that. Excuse me. We can trust God because he's on our side. In verses 6 and 7, they both relay that the Lord is on my side. They, 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 this was written long before Nationwide Insurance had the idea. No, the Lord is on your side. Having God on our side means that God fights battles on your side. The Lord is with you. 
The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? God is on my side. So we trust God and we reject fear. I will not fear. And then there's this bold statement. What can man do to me? Some might think that's, that's a little too much bravado for the psalmist. But this is not a proud boast. This is not a taunt. This is trust. This is someone who's trusting the Lord. And what great comfort when we are no longer afraid of what other people can do to us. We realize other people, men are only men. Women are just women. Human beings are finite. We are all the same. Some of us may have more earthly power or greater confidence or more accumulated wealth, but we are all just flesh and soul. We all come into the world with nothing. We all leave the world with nothing. There is no human being who gives or sustains his or her own life and breath. We're all the same. But God, God is all powerful and all good. And we can trust God because God knows, God cares, God sustains, God directs, God comforts, God works all things together for good with greater wisdom than we can ever see or comprehend. If God is for us, who can be against us? What can man do to me? I love the boldness of men of faith who will not fear other people because they know that God is on their side. Men like Matthew Henry who said, they can do nothing to me but what God permits them to do. They can do no real damage for they cannot separate me from God. And they cannot do anything but what God can make to work for my good. The enemy is a man, a depending creature whose power is limited and subordinate to a higher power. And therefore, I will not fear him. Charles Spurgeon says, the psalmist here speaks like a champion throwing down a gauntlet to all corners, defying the universe in arms. Without fear and without reproach, he enjoys God's favor and he defies every foe, saying, I shall look upon my haters. Just so you know, Charles Spurgeon was using the word haters long before social media ever came along. He says, I shall look upon my haters. I shall look them in the face. I shall make them to cease from their contempt. I shall myself look down upon them instead of their looking upon me. I shall see their defeat. I shall see the end of them. This is what it looks like to trust God. It's not just comfort in our physical lives, but it declares this spiritual reality that the Lord is on your side. Trusting the Lord means we take refuge in Him. Verses 8 and 9 say, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. As we talk about how life is lived in the middle, this is a psalm for living life in the middle. Dr. James Boyce makes a somewhat whimsical point about these two verses, verses 8 and 9. He says this, he says, It is reported by people who count such things that there are 31,174 verses in the Bible. And if that is so, then these verses, verses 8 and 9, 
the 15,587th and the 15,588th are the middle verses. That position should be reason enough to give them prominence. And what do you suppose the middle verses should say? Significantly, they are about putting our trust in God rather than human beings. Now, I'm not one for finding deep significance in numerology, but that's a compelling fact right there. (laughs) In the very middle of the Bible, the call is to trust God rather than human beings. I also find it interesting how the couplet changes the word. The first verse says, it is better to take refuge than trust in man. And the second verse changes it to princes. Don't put your ultimate hope in people. And don't put your ultimate trust in rulers or in empires or in one person in power or any government system. We're 25 days away from the next U.S. presidential inauguration. And we have felt the tensions of the highly politicized atmosphere of our culture. It's creating fear and anxiety and judgment and anger and disunity and on and on. The Word of God does not minimize the significant role and responsibility that government members and government play. They're placed there by God, it says in Romans 13.1, to act righteously and to bring peace. In our country, we have been given some measure of responsibility and voice that gets expressed through the election process. We should always take that seriously. But if your hope, if your sense of peace and your sense of security is tied into election outcomes as to which candidate or which party carries a particular election, then perhaps you need to be reminded that it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Why? Because it's there that we can find real trust. There we find real peace. There we find real security. People are finite. People are sinful. God is good and does good. His steadfast love endures forever. And this is not simply true for American Christians. This is for Christians worldwide who live under far worse conditions in politics and government systems than we do. They have to heed the same call that we do, that it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. When we have that level of trust then we're going to resonate with the declaration of Psalms of verse 17 when it says, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. This is the verse that Martin Luther so often clung to as his life was threatened. But he saw God preserving him in the early years of the Reformation. In fact, this psalm was Martin Luther's favorite psalm. He said he, he fell in love with this psalm. This is the logical conclusion that flows from the courageous declarations that we heard from Matthew Henry and Charles Spurgeon not to fear men and what they can do to us. God preserves our lives when other forces would seek to destroy them. Again, Stephen Nichols comments, he says, The psalmist is not saying, I'll never die, I'm invincible. Instead, the psalmist has come to the realization that he is squarely 
and fully in God's hand and squarely and fully hedged in by the protection of the Almighty God. The psalmist can say that nothing will befall me and my heavenly Father has not, that my heavenly Father has not ordained and is not orchestrated and brought to pass. And in that, the psalm has confidence. And you can have that same confidence. We can have that same confidence that nothing will befall us. It's the Lord, not man, that is to be trusted for his steadfast love endures forever. This gives us a firm foothold. In fact, it's not just a foothold. A foothold sounds like you're mountain climbing and you're like looking for the next safe place to stand. This gives us bedrock to stand on. Whether we are trying to make sense of the headlines or wrestling with decisions or thinking about what's going on with our kids' school, we're trying to stay safe in the midst of COVID, we're thinking about our children or our parents or what does it mean to love your neighbor and what does it mean to be a citizen in our nation. This psalm speaks to how we make it through, how we remain joyful in the questions, how we remain peaceful in the uncertainty, how to reassure our family when they're anxious, how to comfort people who are left isolated, how to encourage friends who are lonely. In uncertain times, we have a certain God. We recount the deeds of the Lord. We recount his goodness and steadfast love. We recount how he has answered us. We remind ourselves that he is on our side. We recount how he has been a refuge to us. When all around our soul gives way, he then is all your hope and stay on Christ, the solid rock we stand. And that in and of itself is also an expression of trust. Singing a hymn like On Christ the Solid Rock, the psalmist suggests that a great way to recount the deeds of the Lord is to sing them. In verses 14 to 16, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. That's a direct quote from the song of Moses in Exodus 15 too, after the Red Sea closed over the Egyptians. The Lord is to be our song. In fact, singing can be a wonderful act of faith. It can be an act of defiance to the trials. Singing can reflect the peace that we get from knowing that God is in control. Sometimes when I'm out for a run, I try to hum or sing a song while I'm running just to practice breathing control. Because I feel like if I say I can sing a song while I'm running, then that, that is, reflects some certain level of strength in that. We find strength and hope as we sing because singing is a recounting of the deeds of God. It's an act of trust in the Lord. I think that's what we see in Acts chapter 16 when Paul and Silas sing in their prison cell. When it says about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them and suddenly there was a great earthquake so the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When we take time in the midst of trials to sing about the Lord, I think there's a good chance you're going to see doors fling open and bonds breaking. We find our trust in the Lord is strengthened. The Lord is my strength and my song. In moments like that, the songs help us to not only trust, but to triumph. To triumph. And our last point this morning, and I'll close with this, this last section of Psalm 
118 verses 19 to 29 turns the corner from the trusting to the triumph. We triumph as we declare with, with verse 21 that the God has become my salvation. It's not insignificant that the Hebrew word for salvation is Yeshua. It's the same word for the name of Jesus. His name means salvation. In verses 19 and 20, it's a picture of coming into Jerusalem after a battle. The gates of the city and the gates of the temple are open. It's returning to the presence of the Lord. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. But here's the thing. Here's the problem. We know that we're not righteous. We know that we've all sinned against the Lord. We don't deserve this steadfast love that he's lavished upon us. In our sinfulness, we can't rightfully enter. That's why we need the Lord to become our Yeshua, the Lord to become our salvation. And verses 22 to 26 goes on to detail for us how the Lord becomes our salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. Instead of us being rejected from entering the gates of righteousness, God himself stepped into our place. That's the Lord's doing. And that is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus stepped into the middle. He stepped into the middle of the trials, into the middle of the pain. Jesus was in Jerusalem for the Passover right before he died. And he taught in the temple. And in Matthew 21, he quotes this Passover hymn right before that the, that the stone that the builders rejected was becoming the cornerstone. He quotes it about himself. And after he had eaten the last supper with his disciples, Matthew 26, 30 says, after they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Garden of Gethsemane. Psalm 118 is the last hymn that Jesus sang before he went to the garden of Gethsemane and sweat those great drops of blood and died for your sins. Before he did that for us, he sang this psalm. He was the one who died that we might live. He was the one who was disciplined severely, even unto death on a cross, that we might be not given over to death. And when he was raised to new life, when he was made the cornerstone, the stone on which the foundation of our faith and of which the foundation of the church is built, he suffered in our place so that he could become our salvation. So that we can enter through those gates and give thanks to the Lord so that we can sing glad songs of salvation that the right hand of the Lord exalts and the right hand of the Lord does valiantly. These are the songs of the righteous. These are our songs of triumph through Christ. When we sing, this is the day that the Lord has made, we will rejoice and be glad in it. That is not only a celebration of God's mercies for every day as a good gift. It is a declaration that today is the day of salvation. This day, the day of salvation is the day that the Lord has made. It is a day of triumph. Jesus' triumph is why we are able to call on him in our need. 
Verses 25 and 26, the crowds sang as Jesus rode in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. They sang, save us, O Lord. That's translated the word Hosanna. Hosanna means save us, O Lord, because he has become our salvation. The prayer and the praises of verses 24 and 25 become ours. We are able to say, save us, O Lord. And we know that he answers We are able to proclaim, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so in verse 27, it says, the Lord is God. He has made his light to shine upon us. That's shorthand for the blessing that God gave to the Israelites in Numbers 6, 24 to 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. There is no greater blessing than being chosen by God and to have his face shine upon you. It's the ultimate expression of his revelation of himself and of his favor. Everything about God's salvation is summed up in his face shining on us. This is the blessing of living in his steadfast love that endures forever. Being able to say with verse 28, you are my God. We live in his triumph. We don't need to fear. We have joy that sustains us in situations and circumstances as they change. We live giving thanks to the one who became our salvation. We have the bookends of God's goodness and his steadfast love to hold the trial of life in the middle together. We trust in the Lord and not in man because his steadfast love endures forever. We triumph in the trial because Jesus makes his light to shine upon us. There's a man named Douglas Taylor. He worked as an editor for many years with Banner of Truth Publishers. They published Puritan Writings. And in 2011, he was diagnosed with inoperable liver cancer. For the next three years until his death, he wrote a blog reflecting on walking through the trial with the Lord. And after his death, Banner of Truth published his blogs as a devotional book. I highly recommend it. He chose the title for it out of Psalm 118, 17. I shall not die, but shall live, facing death with gospel hope. In a post entitled, Until the Daybreak, he sums up our hope in this way. Sometimes our hearts tell us, and the devil would have us believe, that the valley goes on endlessly, and there will be no light to cheer us for an indefinitely long time. But let us nail this down for the lie that it is. The Lord can cheer us amid the gloom, and he can turn the shadow of death into the morning. The day will break. The shadows will flee away. This is as certain as the victory of Christ over sin and death at Calvary. It's more certain than the rising of the sun tomorrow morning. More certain than the rising of the sun is that the Lord, with his steadfast love, shines upon you. May we live in the strength and the hope and the certainty that the Lord is good and his steadfast love endures forever.